Wisconsin, a paranormal paradise. With lake monsters, dogmen, haunted hotels, famous ghosts, and deadly killers. It's a lot more than just America's Dairyland. It's time for a deep dive into the weird, wonderful, and terrifying that's lying just below the surface of reality. From American Ghost Walks and Badgerland Legends, this is the Wisconsin Legends Podcast. Dark abodes protect little people and giants from man and his troubles. Under the cover of darkness, little people and giants no longer need to be invisible. On the other hand, sensory loss induced by darkness makes humans more perceptive. With heightened senses, both little people and giants are more easily detected. At night, little people dance, play pranks, cook, hunt, feast, carve stone, walk with night animals, or help humans. Shamans and others who possess the ability to act as intermediaries are creatures of night and often do business with spirits at that time, by dream or otherwise. Most are dreams of medicine power, although nightmares may become more common when little peoples become space aliens, fairies, or schizoid visions. Whether empowering, scary, or both, dreams of little people can be hard to wake up from among Shoshone, Ojibwa, and whites. Like spatial borders, twilight sightings relate to the role of little people and giants as go-betweens and troublemakers. Twilight is neither day nor night, and thus stands above the bonds of division, which is also the tradition in many Euro-American ghost tales as well. Ojibwa, Maya, and Hispanic little peoples most often appear in transition months or days of the week. Dreams, waking, dying, birth, crossroads, midnight, noonday, and solstices are also when traffic between human and other worlds are easiest because the boundaries are thin. Boundaries need both sides, as there's no life without death, no winter without summer, no dawn without dusk. This may be why the Blackfeet leave gifts for little people just before leaving for the summer hunt and upon their return. In between day and night, twilight, arise apply equally to little people and giants who appear as dark shadows and to those who have bodies, heads, eyes, or clothes that glow or reflect. Night rounds and softens edges while day sharpens them. Twilight does both. All the ambiguity unnerves humans used to pat answers that are either black or white, but not both. Daylight, once again, makes people secure by removing the unknown elements of the dark. That's from Exploring Native American Folklore, Little People and Giants by Frederick E. Harris. That was part of his dissertation at the University of Montana, but he did his undergrad at the University of Wisconsin-Madison All right. in 2003. And so I uh, just want to do a quick intro for that to talk about Haunchyville today on this episode of Wisconsin Legends. Once again, I am Mike Huberty, the owner of American Ghost Walks, and I'm here with... Jeff Finnup of Badgerland Legends. And today we're talking about the evil little people of Muskego, Jeff, and those are the Haunchies. I heard you're not supposed to go down to Haunchyville. <laughs> that, I, right? You never know what's going to happen. And if I can opine on the opening statement, yes. that sounds like something that could have been written by Lovecraft. Right? Yeah, it has that, that feeling, that, that idea of liminality, mm -hmm. that these creatures of the extremes, little people and giants, which feature heavily in European and Native American folklore, they exist in the extremes, and humans are the ones who live in the liminality because we're neither totally small or totally big. Yeah, we're kind of caught in between, and I think people of a small stature or tall stature could also feel 
like they live in a liminal realm as well. Mm -hmm. So when's the first time you heard the word Haunchyville? It was probably in the book Weird Wisconsin by Linda Godfrey. That's right. And I think that's where a lot of people originally heard about it. And, and we're going to talk about some of the tales that they spin in that Weird Wisconsin book in a second. I first heard about it from one of my friends who was working in Muskego. And we used to go on these, we called them fright nights in high school, where we would go and we'd find uh, abandoned places that had legends associated with them. We'd go check them out. The cool kids are calling them legend trips now. Right. Yeah, right. I mean, this was back in the mid-90s. So in the mid-90s, you grew up how far from Muskego? Well, I grew up in a town called Big Bend, which is just, I mean, three minutes away. If we were late going to the 11 o'clock mass in Big Bend, my mother would just keep driving and we'd get to Muskego to, and we'd be there on time. So you couldn't walk into church late because that's a faux pas for a Catholic, right? <laughs> yes. And there was right. always that one guy or that one family that would wander in five minutes late. Yeah. And the Huberty clan. If we were too late, we would head off to Muskego. Like, we're, we're driving to Muskego. Yeah, so we were just really just, just a couple of miles away. Um, Muskego is 10 miles southwest of Milwaukee uh, in Waukesha County. And this is from the Wisconsin Historical Society as they describe its creation. The Potawatomi tribe hunted and fished off Muskego's three lakes even after ceding the land of the U.S. government in 1833. English, German, Irish, Norwegian immigrants settled in Muskego, and the arrival of the Norwegians made Muskego the fifth Norwegian settlement in this country. It was the temporary staying place for immigrants, and it was also where the first Norwegian newspaper, the Nordlid, I'm saying it like the Swedish chef here or whatever, the Nordlid, uh, the Northern Light was published there in 1847. The editor of that newspaper, James Denun Raymart, became the first Norwegian in the state legislature, built the Muskego-Waterford Plank Road, and set up a hospital in 1852 uh, to control a cholera outbreak that was spread by new immigrants. The countryside and lakes were so popular with the residents of Milwaukee that a trolley was built connecting the two in 1904. The Muskego Beach Amusement Park opened in 1925, certifying it as a resort town where Milwaukee residents could escape big city life. According to their website, the word Muskego means sunfish from the original Muskegwak, and um, Muskego's lakes covered 22% of the town's surface. And so... Um, yeah, it was a place I knew well. It was a place where we went to go see movies, the Muskego Theater, uh, in the tiny mall there, we used to call it where movies would go to die. Because that would be like once they played at the big theater, then they play at the second run theater, and then eventually they'd go to the Muskego Theater. And it, it was the kind of place where uh, if you were late for the film, you could call up and they would hold the movie for you. Wow, that small of an operation. <laughs> right. Yes. I remember being late for Demolition Man, and we called before we left, and they, they held the theater. I mean, that's just a little personal anecdotes about it. But I, I had friends that worked there. And so in the mid-'90s, I had these friends that we would go to these places and see if we could legend trip our Fright Nights, Friday nights. And he said, I think I got a place for you. Now, he worked at a place called Williams Supper Club, um, which I don't think is around anymore. Williams Supper Club is right between Muskego and Hales Corners. And so if you take that main road, uh, you know, Janesville Road, you can go all the way from there into Milwaukee through Hales Corners. And, you know, he said that he found out from some people that worked at the Supper Club, he was a dishwasher there. And he's like, the other dishwashers, are, tell me about this place where 
there's a little village of of dwarves that are bent on revenge. And I said, do you know where it is? And he's like, absolutely. He told me where it is. And I'm like, we're going. What road is this on, Mike? The best part is, it, is the name of it. It's Mystic Drive. So already just with the name, it's kind of legendary. Right. Mystic Drive. And it's a place that, you know, high schoolers would go and people who were looking to do legend trips. And the idea was if you walked up Mystic Drive, you would run into these, well, little people um, that would come out and, and throw rocks at you and tell you to get lost. Now, the legend, as it was told to me, is near the end of Mystic Drive in Muskego is a barn where a farmer hung himself. Underneath the body, in the dirt, you could see many child-sized footprints all around where he was hanging. And on the wall, there was a message written in his own blood that said, The haunchies made me do it. The haunchies made me do it. If you go down to the end of Mystic Drive, you can still see the barn, and sometimes people report the phantom of a hanging body at night. And as you go down the road, you'll see the houses with small doorways and stop signs at a much smaller height. And, yeah. So I was like, we have to know about this place. Gotta go. So, of course, we wanted to check it out. Um, so we pick a night in the summer and drive out to Haunchyville to find out what we could see. It was a hot night. We parked our car before we got to the no trespassing sign and just started walking down the road. It's mostly just an empty field, nothing exciting. We did see a few signs that maybe were lower than normal, but nothing special. And maybe there's some shacks in the background, but nothing that looked unusual or haunted. And there's definitely no hanging ghost body, which is what I was hoping to see. As we got farther down the road, me and my friends heard a powerful scream that sounded like a gigantic bird. It really was like a, like a pterodactyl or something like that. No, I mean, not that I know what a pterodactyl sounds like, but this is what I imagine a pterodactyl yeah. sounds like. Uh, sound like a gigantic bird. So in my bravery, I ran. I just got up and ran. I'm like, oh my God, I ran away. I abandoned my friends and, I, um, and they ridiculed me for it. They're like, thanks for leaving me to get killed by the monster. I'm like, sorry guys. Self-preservation kicked in and Mike <laughs> well, yeah, hightailed is, it out of there. I definitely was not proud of like, that was not my courageous moment in the face of fear. I was like, ah! Oh! <laughs> took off, I really, I took off running down the road. And those that are joining us from outside of Wisconsin, we do have some monster birds here. Yes. We, we have sandhill cranes. We have a very large Canadian geese. Canadian. Canadian <laughs> geese or Canada geese, however right. you want to call them. And um, they're huge, absolutely. And, and if you do spook them, their defense mechanism kicks in and they will make a loud screech and it will scare the crap out of you. But, but I was all jacked up, you know, all from the, from we're going somewhere, we're trespassing, all those kind of things. And in, in the imagery created, you're, you're driving down to, you know, this remote location and you're expecting to see, you know, either a ghost or maybe vengeful little people. Right. They would come out and then they'd throw stuff at you. So you're already primed for that. And yeah. then something in the natural world happens and... I crap knocks. my pants and run. Just, <laughs> and just, just, just shameful. So did everybody else stay? Or well, did, no, did Mike just take off and run back to the car and everybody else is like... It really was how fast I ran that was the thing. It was the fact that, I, you know, and I don't even remember, like my girlfriend was with me at the time and I don't remember if I like grabbed her and ran or I just was like, see ya. Yeah, so no, that was, I was brave, brave Sir Robin who bravely ran away uh, that day. And so, you know, everybody made fun of me afterwards and stuff. And we all came back and we're like, well, there's nothing really to haunt you, Phil. 
And that's all I thought of it. I did not realize it was as big of a deal as it was until the Weird Wisconsin website came out a couple years later. And it was one of the things featured on the Weird Wisconsin website. So did the Weird Wisconsin website follow, was it a precursor to the book or did it come out as like a companion piece? It came before the book. So the Weird Wisconsin website is run by Richard Hendricks and that's up in the late 90s. And then the Weird Wisconsin book comes out in the early 2000s. So um, Richard Hendricks and Linda Godfrey, who we talk about in the Beast, she's the main Beast of Bray Road researcher. They did an interview with the Marinette Eagle Herald when the Weird Wisconsin book uh, came out in April 2005. And this is what they said about Haunchyville. According to teenagers all over the southern part of the state, Haunchyville is a community of little people, deadly midgets, as one person in the book refers to them who lives in a secret community in Muskego. A lone, normal-sized man stands guard in the community surrounded by cornfields to make sure no trespassers enter the forbidden zone. Being from northern Wisconsin, Hendricks found out about Haunchyville from an unsolicited email from a fan of his website, weird-wi.com. The first email I ever got said, Surely you've heard of Haunchyville. It was like this challenge. I started asking around, and before I knew it, I was getting other emails over time, said Hendricks. It was one of those typical stories that teenagers tell. It goes back to the old tradition of snipe hunts and things like that. Older brothers and fathers and uncles tell these tales, and the kids want to go and see it for themselves. Unlike many of the stories of Weird Wisconsin, Hendricks wasn't able to find any truth about Haunchyville, though there is some truth to the $276 fine you can receive for trespassing in Muskego. On the other hand, there were lots of circus enclaves in Wisconsin, and when those circuses broke up, they had lots of little people that had to go somewhere. This is coming from Linda Godfrey playing devil's advocate to the not the untruth about Haunchyville. She says the whole thing does make sense because I do know of a community on Delavan Lake that had ex-circus people that was quite private. So there's Linda saying, like, well, she can see why there's some kind of uh, a truth and most people, when they think of Circus Town, Wisconsin, they think of Baraboo. Absolutely. Because of the Ringling Brothers and Barnum Bailey Circus and kind of their headquarters there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Delavan was actually the home of what specific circuses? Oh, I don't know. I know it has circus ties. Okay. So Delavan does have circus ties. And I, I didn't even realize that. And then Linda knows about an actual you know, group of ex-circus people who lived in Delavan. So the idea that these vengeful dwarves would be living in a community in Wisconsin was an alien to her. And, you know, this legend can, you know, it starts in the 1950s or whatever, but then it, it starts getting a little more exaggerated. It, you know, it says that there were former circus sideshow dwarves and they murdered their ringmaster. They would attack you with burning torches. They would saw off your legs at the knees and make you live with them. So cut you down to size. They had a full-size protector who was an albino, of course. And he'd fire off shotgun warnings to make you leave the land. And that the albino was someone who was abandoned as a baby. And uh, the haunchies found him. And they took him into their settlement. And he lived with them as their protector because they raised him. But the, the one I like is that the legend was invented as a front for a distillery or a liquor operation during the 1920s. Which makes sense for that time in Wisconsin. Yeah. And the version I heard and maybe the kind I like the best is that that young man was ridiculed for his albinism. So he wandered off into the woods and found the haunchies. And since he was an outcast and they were an outcast, they took him in. 
Well, the young man didn't stay small forever. So he eventually grew into uh, a large man. And they're protective. And he either has an axe or a shotgun to protect his adoptive family of little people. So it's it's just a such a fantastical story. Right. It, it keeps on building on itself, too. It, as many legends do. And, um, and here's some from, from the Weird Wisconsin book. There's a couple of pages just dedicated to Haunchyville. And um, here's some of the stories that they were, you know, were telling. Uh, Waist-high stop signs. Have you ever heard of Haunchyville? It supposedly it's a town of midgets. I have heard that the stop signs around this town are waist-high, and if you get into the actual town, the midgets come after you with bats. If you have heard of it, could you tell me what it is? I'd very much like to see if the story is true. That was sent into the Weird Wisconsin website. They attack with their little knives. I'm from Bayview, and the legend of the Haunchies has been around since I was a kid. Supposedly, the Haunchies live in the woods around the lakefront in Grant Park and Sheridan Park around Bayview, Cudahy, St. Francis, and South Milwaukee. So now, it's the Haunchies are living in a different place. They've moved. They wait for the big people, that's us, to park their cars and make out. Then they attack, wielding little knives. They have their own society in the woods. I was seriously scared of them when I was a kid, and I still retain a little of that fear today. Signs, signs, everywhere are signs. My friends and I went out to Haunchyville tonight. We saw the signs in the gate. All the signs strictly prohibited us from going onto the property. It was very weird. There were three different roads, and we went straight, ignoring the signs. About halfway down, we noticed what we thought might be the gate to Haunchyville. But then three men appeared. They walked towards our car and threw something at us. And at this point, we just sped off. Now, were they little people? I don't know. And here's one more from the book. Mutilated by Little Creatures. That's the name of this one. I first heard the story growing up in Greendale about 30 years ago. We were told that the area was once home to a group of midgets who had worked in the circus. Years later, after the area had been abandoned, a teenage couple parked their car in the cornfields to make out, and they were attacked by little creatures that left scratch marks on the roof of their car. The teenagers were found dead, mutilated in the car. We used to skip school and drive out there into the cornfields, and strangely there were little roads going through the fields and small shacks and little boats. I never went back there as an adult, but I'm sure what I saw had some rational explanation. That's, that guy signs his actual name, not just some kind of online thing. Rich, Rich Maringer uh, said that he, uh, yeah, some little shacks and little boats. Which, you know, I didn't believe in the little shacks and little boats because I didn't see anything out there. It did look like the signs may have been a little shorter, but I was expecting to see, you know, like houses with small doorways and things like that, like I was promised. You're looking for like a... Almost like a kid's amusement park, which kind of ties into this, or right. some kind of little roadside attraction that you see. Yeah, and and I was hoping to see a, a ghost of a farmer. I wanted to see that. I, I kept on thinking about the Hanging Bonnie. But in, in 2010, uh, Matt Wild is a, a Milwaukee writer, and he writes about Haunchyville for the AV Club, the Onion AV Club, which is around at the time. And he said, driving down a heavily wooded road in this area, it's easy to see why it's become Haunchy Ground Zero. Tall grass and trees provide plenty of cover, and a long, gated private drive snakes off even deeper into the woods. In fact, it's near this gate that something strange can be seen. Less than 50 yards off the road, buried deep in the underbrush and hidden from prying eyes, is a small series of crumbling stone huts. Far from the bustling town of legend, there's still something undeniably intriguing about these ruins, and something decidedly unsettling. Might this be the evidence of the fabled haunchy fill? And I thought that was interesting um, because he even puts a, a couple pictures up of some of the stone huts in the background. 
So does he show a historical photo of the stone hunts? No, or it's like he drove down like there. He, he drove down there and, and, and documented. So there was actually maybe some impetus for the legend. So now you have kind of the circus culture of Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. You have these abandoned stone huts, um, Mystic Drive, right. all kind of coalescing into like one location. Yeah, and I like how it all comes together in that it's a, it's a lover's lane kind of area. You know, it could be a lover's lane kind of area. Um, it's a place where teenagers were familiar with because they were coming to go to the park and stuff and the beach. And, um, and this is from some YouTube comments, like recent YouTube comments on Haunchyville videos on YouTube. And I, I know obviously YouTube would take this with a grain of salt, but to back up Matt's statement here, this is from Jenna S. I went a few times when I was a teen. It's at a dead end where there's three gated lots, and the one in the middle has a giant scary statue in it. So we got spooked and left, and the one to the right is where I saw three very small, tiny shacks. Never any little people, though. I can't think of a cool name. Writes, There is truth to the legend. I've been there, and I remember a mailbox with a stepping stool to the top. There are also little huts. So... That's more people talking about the small stone structures they could have found in Haunchyville. And, um, you know, I was thinking about that. Like, oh, man, so, you know, people are seeing little stone structures. You know, what could that be from? And originally I thought that was from the Muskego Beach Amusement Park. And that was something, um, Muskego Beach Amusement Park, you know, 1924 is when people started going there. But 1928, they start actually building roller coasters there, like a real amusement park. Uh, it had the largest roller coaster in the Midwest at the time, with a drop of 75 feet at Muskego Beach. This is from the Waukesha County Historical Society marker at where Muskego Beach used to be. Uh, new rides and arcade and ballroom were added, and the bathing beach was enlarged. Muskego Beach was operated as Dandelion Park from 1968 until closing May 1978. And there actually uh, was a real amusement park there, but then Great America, which is a you know, big Six Flags now, was married at the time, opened in Gurney, Illinois, about an hour south. Yeah, suburb of Chicago. And so that kind of, like, that kind of took the wind out of the Muskego Beach's sails, as it were. And then Dandelion Park eventually closed down. So I thought that's where those structures may have came from that people were talking about. Um, but Mystic Drive to where the Muskego Beach Amusement Park was just, it's pretty far away. So it probably wouldn't be anything from the park unless people dragged something over there. Now, the park did have its own tragedy. Uh, 1974, an 11-year-old falls to his death from the roller coaster. And that's not a legend that actually happened. The Scene Journal Times has an interview with his mother where she talked about it in 2013, uh, Lois Pruka. And so she was, you know, she, she discussed, you know, what had happened and he wasn't tied in tight enough and he fell off. And, he, you know, the tragedy yeah, and we, died and we hear about these tragic events still to this day at amusement parks. Yeah. And so in like 1956, the owner of the Dandelion Amusement Park, he wants to make room for a parking lot. So he disinters the original Muskego Center Cemetery and they move the bodies to different places. Uh, Prairie Home in Waukesha, Arlington, and Milwaukee. I've got relatives buried at Arlington, Milwaukee. Forest Home in Milwaukee and Sunnyside, New Berlin. And so a whole bunch of, like they 
at this park, they did the classic poltergeist move or whatever. I was going to say, like, every horror movie trope starts with right. digging up the dead. Digging up the bodies and moving them for a parking lot. And so uh, if you're looking to stir up ghosts, that's the quickest way to do it. And, and so originally I thought that that was, you know, that the people were seeing stuff from Muskego Beach. But when I looked at the map, Mystic Drive to Muskego, it just would be too far. Like when you get to the end of Mystic Drive, you're not anywhere close enough to where the amusement park used to be. So structurally, there's no time. Didn't work. But maybe mentally there could be where you're kind of conflating the two different things. Like, well, it's a perfect lover's lane too. If, you're okay. thinking, if, if you're driving away saying like, I know this place, Mystic Drive, you go to the end, it's kind of abandoned and stuff like that. It's quiet. It's not, you know, and then people would go there and make out. And that's like, if you're going to the beach, here's the place you can slip off to. You know, you got your, I don't know, Ford Pinto or whatever you're driving in 1972. There's a place to go and places where teenagers went. This is the kind of legend that would spread. And so I was trying to think like, okay, well, what could have those stone structures been? And looking at the, uh, this is from the history of Waukesha County in 1880, uh, talks about one of the original settlers in Muskego and the kind of place he built. Uh, the first summer was spent in a 12 by 13 claim shanty where uh, Mr. Peck and his two children lived under a bark roof on a puncheon floor cooked in a small tin baker and in kettles hung on poles over a fireplace. The fireplace was just backed up with mud and stones. Only blankets hung in the door and window openings to separate them from the wolves howling outside. And that's from the History of Waukesha County book from 1880. So they built these stone structures. The Norwegian settlers built these stone structures um, as part of the original settlement. This is from A History of Norwegian Immigration in the United States by George T. Flom, Ph.D., 1909. And he's talking about a, a settlement of people that came from Muskego, Wisconsin. And they had moved to Blue Mounds, Wisconsin, and settled that area. But when they settled in Blue Mounds, they first built log huts. And they lived there for a couple of years. And then they would build stone structures soon after. And so these tiny huts that people were seeing were probably... The, Primitive houses. The remnants of the pioneer houses that were built uh, in the 1840s and 50s, which makes it sad to me. This is Matt Wilde returning to Haunchyville five years later for the Milwaukee record. Returning to the site in a bright, clear early afternoon, I find my old fears confirmed. What was once a tantalizingly wild and underdeveloped area, perfect for a colony of vindictive little people, is now an upscale and bland subdivision. Prefab houses dot the bulldozed landscape. Front lawns the size of golf courses stretch on for miles, and the crumbling stone huts are nowhere to be found. About the only thing that remains is the beat-up private road sign I'd snapped a picture of in 2010, and now again in 2015. So, these, uh, you know, I, that, I think that is almost as interesting. I, I would have liked to see the huts from the Norwegian settlers. Yeah, I had never known that wrinkle to the tale that there were actual huts there. Right. And then, you know, just the blight of suburbanization just kind of came in and took any That's character it. off the land, unfortunately. Well, it's just, I mean, Muskego is a nice suburb of Milwaukee. The beaches are close and the lakes are beautiful. Like, it's a nice, I grew up five minutes away. It's a nice place to live. And so, are you going to waste that land? <laughs> like, the, the developer is like, I'm going to make some money on it. So, I thought my original thought was like, oh, these were structures in Muskego Beach. Totally not. Or at least, I don't think so. So do we know what the timeline was for 
Dandelion Park, when did that close? Dandelion Park closed in 1978. And do we know when it was raised? Does it still remain anything from the park? Stuff from the park was there until the 80s. When we would go to that movie theater in Muskego, when we were driving by, on some days, on clear days and stuff, you could see the remnants of the roller coasters. Mm-hmm. And so that stuff was still up until the mid to late 80s. And I don't remember it actually being taken down. And I think that actually the fire department burned most of the stuff, like in a controlled burn, burned it down. Um, until the mid 90s, I went to college. I remember it came back and somebody said like, oh yeah, all the stuff from Muskego Beach is gone. So... The actual, I mean, people could have screwed around in that amusement park and <laughs> climbed the roller coaster through much yeah. of the 80s. Sounds like attractive nuisance. <laughs> right. Sounds like something I wish I would have done now <laughs> uh, when it was up and gone, gone to explore. A little bit more, more intriguing than, than Haunchyville, it, hanging off of a 75. Well, I, I, I did have the chance to humiliate myself in front of my friends. <laughs> so uh, I, I won't so always, it was good for something. <laughs> I won't get that back. That's for sure. And, you know, and so... I wouldn't recommend going. There's nothing to see down there today. And, you know, even if you do, Lieutenant Dave Constantino from the Muskego Police, let him tell you. While most Muskego kids know it's a myth, kids from the surrounding areas continue to go down there and it drives the homeowners nuts. But the point we want to drive home, there are no little people, no axe murderers, just nice taxpaying people who want to live in peace. And if we catch you, you are going to get a ticket. Now, he sounds more like Roscoe P. Coltrane, <laughs> that's, where he'd probably sound more like Char- Charlie Barron's. <laughs> that's true. That's true. But just, you know, I just love, he's like, if you come on down there. You come on down. You're we'll take get, care of you. You're going to get a ticket, son. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's not just in southeastern Wisconsin that we have these stories of little people. It's different places all around the country have the same type of thing. There's Tiny Town in Cincinnati. That's the same kind of idea, that Tiny Town uh, was a settlement of ex-circus dwarves. And I know it was supposed to be dwarf, not midget, because dwarf is a person, Dwarfism and a midget is a... just an insult <laughs> or whatever. So when we use it here, we're using it as a quote, not because we don't understand the difference. But that actually is a former amusement park. And so when people see little things like there, they're seeing near Cincinnati they are seeing the remnants of the amusement park. I think it's all torn down now. But at the time, they were seeing the old, like, kids train. They would go around the park and, like, the kids' play areas. And so when they'd see that in the distance, they'd think it was once again. A perfect place for dwarves to, to hang place. out and live. That's where, that's where they want to live. For not, vengeful, not in regular people's houses. They want something their size. Vengeful circus dwarves. Vengeful. In San Antonio, Texas, they had a place called Midget Mansion. And uh, actually, I talked to one of my friends who he'd, he'd gone down there like it was an abandoned house um, mansion. And they'd go down there and like they go drinking and stuff like that, you know, in high school in the 80s. But the story behind Midget Mansion is once again, it is a either a circus dwarf who got rich off of like being in the Wizard of Oz. It's one story or got rich in the circus and then killed his ringmaster or whatever. But the idea is that he moves there, he um, marries another little person, they have a family, but the servants that they hire are all regular size, and they treat them horribly. And so they're treating their servants horribly because they want to get revenge on all the regular size people that made fun of them over their lives. And then the servants kill them, and like 
you know, there's a fire and the whole deal. And the legend is that it's supposed to be haunted by the, you know, the spirits of the, of the vengeful little people that were there who just wanted to get back at the regular size people. And so there's uh, that story in San Antonio. There's also supposed to be a settlement outside of Jefferson Township, New Jersey. Uh, that's the, another idea of ex-circus dwarves who, if you come by, they're going to get at you. There's Lalinda, California, um, where there's supposed to be the settlement of dwarves who worked on the Wizard of Oz. And that's the idea there. And they also don't want to have regular-sized people around. And the idea that the dwarves who worked in the Wizard of Oz were, like, mean-spirited or crazy or drunken really comes from a movie. And this is, let me read you, this is from The New Yorker in uh, 2018. The Wizard of Oz, The Last Munchkin, and The Little People Left Behind by Matt Weinstock. For the 124 little people who descended on the set, this is on The Wizard of Oz, of Munchkinland, it was a moment of homecoming. When the dwarf Hazel Resmondo walked onto the soundstage, she wept. Several little people met their husbands and wives while making the film, and others formed lasting friendships. The experience made me feel like maybe I wasn't so bad after all, Fern Formica, who played a sleepyhead, said in 1991. Maybe I was good as anyone else. According to the activist Billy Barty, the unprecedented congregation of little people on Oz led to the formation of the Midgets of America Advocacy Group, now known as the Little People of America, and it boasts more than 6,000 members. But that's not what comes to mind when the subject of munchkins is broached. The pervasive rumor is that drunken orgies regularly took place at the Culver City Hotel, where most of the little people lived while shooting Oz. Judy Garland helped craft this myth herself in an interview with Jack Parr in 1967. She said, they were drunks, they got smashed every night, and they'd pick them up in butterfly nets. <laughs> no talk show anecdote has had such a barnacle hold in the American consciousness. In 1981, Garland's dehumanizing take on the Munchkins was more or less adapted into the cornball Chevy Chase comedy Under the Rainbow, and the story is since perpetuated by media figures ranging from Sally Jesse Raphael, quote, an absolute orgy went on, unquote, to NPR's Scott Simon, who said there was a Roman-like scene. The film historian Hugh Forden called the Munchkins an unholy assemblage of pimps, hookers, and gamblers, the most deformed, unpleasant bunch of adults imaginable. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so paints quite the image of these little people. Yes. And that's the thing. So if it's not just Wisconsin where they had this legend, this legend was all these different places in the country. And it's not just modern day, but it seems like strange stories of little people have popped up in paranormal experiences and in, in Indian legends. And so you've got a couple from Wisconsin, Jeff, I'd like to hear about. Yeah, so the first one is a place called Marble Point. So it's only a short boat ride away from the popular tourist attraction, Madeline Island, Bayfield, LaPointe. Mm -hmm. So if you're ever up in that area, you can check that out after you check out. The Bayfield Ghost Walk. Bayfield Ghost Walk. So this small outcropping of land, it was very sacred to the Chippewa that once inhabited the banks of Lake Superior. So it's right up there on the tip, just uh, between Ashland and uh, LaPointe. So game was bountiful along the shores, but the elders warned the young braves to never hunt there. It was inhabited by little people who were very protective of the territory. Hmm. 
So along the shores, one can find these very small stones that were made by craft work of these Indian fairy folk. So if you go to the actual marble point, the reason it's called that is because these small little stones, they believe they were caused by like glaciation. So they're round little stones. And they say they're made by the little people, these fairy folk, right? So one may not take an animal or harvest a tree without incurring the wrath of the little people. Now today, Marble Point, it's still undeveloped. Could it be due to the fae folk protecting the area and mm. their fear of the vengeance? So again, you got the little people, you know, they're protective of their place and they're vengeful. So right, kinda, you got to watch out for them. You have to ask the permission before you do anything. Yeah, so the elders of the tribe forbade the young braves to hunt there or take trees there, and it's kind of a sacred place. And still to this day, it's undeveloped, uninhabited. And if you go there, you can find the little marbles. Don't take one unless you want to take a ferry home with you. But maybe that'd be... Right, do not grab a stone unless you want a haunchie in your house. <laughs> Nobody wants a ghost of a haunchie in their house. No. Well, maybe some people do. So that is the legend of the little people of Marble Point. Now, there's a similar one in Lac de Flambeau, which is uh, Lake of the Torches Casino, Northwoods Casino, that uh, a lot of people like to visit up in the Northwoods. And it's called the Little People of Strawberry Island, and it's from Ojibwe lore. So you have the Chippewa, and now you have the Ojibwe. So the island of Strawberry Island is a sacred place of the little people. The little people are tricksters. They can be kind or they can be deadly, depending on their whims. And just more into the actual Spirit Island or Strawberry Island is the historical implications is it was the final battle of the Iron Wars between the Sioux and the Ojibwe. Numerous warriors are buried there and hundreds of years of Ojibwe, Sioux, and Ho-Chunk's burials precede them. So it was kind of um, a cemetery island. Sure. So Kind of like how we treat Gettysburg or something like that today, like the final battle of the Iron fun, Wars. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a sacred place. It's been a sacred place, and it was kind of a final battle between the, the Sioux and the Ojibwe. And then the Sioux were defeated on that island, and it caused the Sioux to retreat back to Minnesota. Ah. But by leaving Strawberry Island, they abandoned their ancestors. Now the disturbed spirits of the ancestors cannot rest and are forced to wander the island searching for their tribe. So it's a place of uh, many burials. And amongst that ghost population are a French Jesuit priest, outlaws, treasure hunters, British soldiers, bootleggers, drowned fishermen who've wandered up along the shore, as well as the uh, abandoned Sioux. Mm. So it has numerous nicknames, Ghost Island, Spirit Island, Burial Island, and Island of Bones. And, of course, in that mix is the fairies who are kind of the protective, you know, sometimes they can be uh, ill-tempered and other times they can be kind of uh, tricksters. Well, I like how the legend, I mean, fairies protective of a sacred place, little people protective of a sacred place is... Much different than like angry ex circus dwarf. <laughs> like that's like the difference in, in the difference in the legend of like it's it's the same idea that little people will come out after you. Throwing stones is always such a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's in in poltergeist lore too. Stones getting thrown at you and fairies. And even some of the the Bigfoot lore too. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So like people getting stones tossed at them 
connects all of these different things. But then the reasons that we place on them are different. You know, you think of Strawberry Island as a sacred place. People died here. People were buried here. It means something as compared to Mystic Drive, you know, <laughs> where it's like, okay, you got to be careful out here, man. Or the haunches will cut your legs down. You know, it's just, it's, <laughs> it's, cut, it's, it's a, different, a different motive, but yet it's, it's the same thing. And uh, I think your last story here is one of my favorites because it's just so weird. Yeah, this is a great one. It's uh, about uh, a family in turn of the century, Wisconsin, and they're the Andersons. So when the Andersons had this is out, the turn of the twentieth century here. So like turn of the twentieth century. It's, so. it's hard to forget sometimes that we think it's yeah. you know, no, no, turn no, of the century could be two thousand. Some of these guys. Yeah, this is nineteen hundred nineteen. So you know, finally, kind of reaching a age of electrification. You have the mass sale of automobiles. You have kind of a restructuring of America, going from you know horse and buggy candlelight to automotive power, and uh, electrified lighting. So when the Andersons headed out in their new car for a summer's afternoon ride, it's likely they couldn't have foretold what their 13-year-old boy, Harry, was about to witness. We're running low on oil, Mr. Anderson proclaimed, while pulling his primitive automobile to the side of the road. He handed an oil can to his eldest son, head on up the road, Harry, and see if you can get some old farmer to lend you some. So back in the day, automobiles would run on gas, of course, but they'd also run on oil. So oh, once, okay. once the oil ran out, you were done as well. So on this remote country road outside of Barron, Anderson the Younger spied the ridgeline of a farmer's house in the distance. He figured it may be quicker to cut through the farmer's field than to take the road that wound down to his property. Uh, when Harry presented the farmer with the can, he obliged. Now with a full can of oil... Harry started his march back to his waiting father. Halfway back, Harry was startled by what could have only sounded like a military procession. And the procession went, We won't stop fighting till the end of the war in 1994. Sound off, one, two, sound off, three, four. Detail, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. So Harry's in the middle of the woods by himself trying to find his way back to the car, to his family. And he hears this, and he's startled. And he quickly ducked behind a maple tree along the path. And what he saw, he could only describe as dwarfish platoon. Hmm. So 20 or so little people clad in lederhosen, all with bleached white skin and bald heads, marched across his field of vision. So a little dwarf army in lederhosen, all, all bleached and bald-headed. So the procession soon passed, and Harry continued his trek back to his waiting family. So that's the story of Harry Anderson and the Little People. It first appeared in the November 1978 issue of Fate magazine. Now, some have questioned the veracity of the experience, <laughs> and right. others assert the story was real, and Harry never wavered from the claim about his strange night in the wilds of Wisconsin. You know, it reminds me of, in Hawaii, they have these night marchers, the, the Minahuni. Yeah. And, um, you know, that uh, the idea of a supernatural military force, you know, supernatural fighters walking across and, and you're not supposed to get in their way. That was the first thing when I first heard that Harry Anderson story, uh, because it is deeply weird. And it's, it's, it's coming at the end of the First World War. 
So, mm-hmm. I mean, he probably knew, he knew people that went to the war. Obviously, a lot of people from Wisconsin went to the First World War. Both of my grandfathers had served in it and, and, and were drafted, you know. And so a lot of people were drafted into the war. And so he, he's got military, he's exposed to military imagery. And he has this experience of seeing the little people coming by. And, like, what would they, you know, they, they're doing the sound off, one, one two, two, sound off, three, yeah. four. They're doing an actual march. It, to me, it almost feels like they're playing a trick on him. You know, that, like this experience, let's joke around with this kid kind of thing. Uh, he sees when they come by. And I think that's, you know, interesting because he sees the little people there. And then uh, we get a story in the 1970s. And I found this on Mysterious Universe and Strange Tales of the Little People. And this is by Nick Redfern. And um, he actually had, Nick had been to Trempola Mountain on the far western side of the state uh, earlier because they had sightings of winged humanoids there. And so Nick was there to check it out. Frank Banner's family tells of the time that Frank, in 1971, encountered a group of around 15 strange diminutive beings in the woods surrounding Trempola Mountain. As he took a stroll with his family dog, according to Banner, as he walked along one particular track, he suddenly developed a sense of being watched. He was. Within seconds, a group of very human-looking, but only about two feet tall, creatures came out of the woods in front of Banner. Curiously, the dog did not act in a hostile fashion, but wagged its tail vigorously, as if it was greeting a bunch of old friends. Banner, however, was terrified by the sight of this strange band of many people, all of whom were dressed in what Banner described as primitive clothing. The group did nothing more than smile at Banner, wave, and then continued on their way into the woods on the other side of the track. Despite the fact that the family made jokes about Frank having met a tribe of pixies, until his dying day, Banner believed he had encountered an extraterrestrial race of very human-like, albeit small, proportions. Now, that reminds me of Harry Anderson's story that they just passed by, said hi, um, and kind of just moved on. And that idea of these, you know, spirits who are little people— it also goes back to native legends of the area. Does and it say how old Frank Banner was? It doesn't mention how old he is. Okay, because Harry Anderson was 13 at the time, which would have been a liminal phase in his life, that's, too. And that's a great point, right. That um, Harry's uh, in puberty. He's, you know, in, he's in between boyhood and manhood. Mm-hmm. I don't know how Frank is, but I assume he must have been old enough that if he's dead by the time Nick writes that story in 2010... Mm -hmm. Um, and it happens in 1971 that, you know, maybe he's 30 or something like that because he'd be 80 then, and the average age is 78, so just (laughs) throw it out there. But there's, in in Indian folklore, in Ojibwe folklore, um, and this comes from the uh, Journal of American Folklore in 1900, there are the Mamegwijewak, sort of sirens or water nymphs, which the Indians believe live in the water and in hollow rocks. They are said to steal very much and to speak with a nasal twang. There are many sayings about them. Uh, when by mischance, when traveling by water, one has let fall anything into the river or lake, it is the custom to say, Memegwizi okat ayan. The Memegwizi will have that, or that is for the Memegwizi. Certain rocks or stones, having some resemblance to parts of the human body, are called Memegwizibek, uh, or Megwiji rock. And then passing by these, the canoemen, even now, either in jest or in superstition, toss at them a piece of tobacco. Of these nymphs, the saying goes, the Memigwiji will rob the net, 
They are the thieves, the memeguiji. The nasal twang of these creatures has furnished an expression of a figurative sort to the language in memeguijico, to speak with a nasal twang, literally to imitate these fairies, these little people, small hairy water spirits that are only able to be seen by animals and children. And, uh, you know, they're often by water. And when you see pictures of them, they look like sprites, you know, like a foot tall kind of thing. Of, it's kind of the, when people imagine as to what they look like. Now, are they these spirits or the fairies who are protecting Trempolo Mountain? This is interesting. William Cullen Bryant is an author, um, and he's a travelogue author in the 1870s. And his book, Picturesque America, he describes Trempolo Mountain as the fairy region. Uh, in a book, Buried Indians Digging Up the Past in Midwestern Town, uh, the author writes, There are effigy mounds on Trempolo Mountain. Below the mountain itself, brochures for Parrot State Park include images of the effigy mounds found in Parkland. Mounds in the shape of birds, deer, dogs, ovals, and wide straight lines, as well as conical burial mounds. But the park people don't tell you where to find them. Archaeologists maintain that the effigy mounds were built sometimes between six and 1200 by the late woodland people, who have since become other peoples, changing their life ways and taking on different names as time passed. Even though archaeologists cannot be certain who succeeded the mound builders in this region, members of the Ho-Chunk, now the dominant native group in the region, believe that they were the mound builders. As the Ho-Chunk anthropologist and a fun maker told me, the mounds are clan totems. Most local people know nothing of the effigy mounds on Trempolo Mountain, and those who know where they are like it that way. And so when we're talking about sacred places and sacred spaces, and Strawberry Island and the little people protecting them, well, now we have Trempolo Mountain, a sacred space as well with, I mean... 22 effigy mounds as well as burial mounds and someone has a strange experience with little people there and so it's interesting when you think well near Haunchyville uh, there's the Maney Ridge Indian mounds which are a couple miles away so it's not like you're you know when you go into Haunchyville it's not like you're around them however there are sacred spaces not too far away from where people say that the Haunchies live. And we have other sacred spaces in Wisconsin where people have seen little ones protecting it or being tricksters and acting like the military going past. And to tie this into a, I guess, weirder, I guess, of the whole paranormal soup yeah. is the St. Coletta's. The encounter with the original encounter of the Beast of Bray Road was right. atop an Indian mount. Yes. So other than these little people protecting the mounds, you also have a dog creature. So don't fuck with the mounds, folks. <laughs> right. That seems, that seems to be the so, message here. So, so if it's not a dog man that's going to get you, it's going to be a, a little It's going to be the haunchy that's going to yeah. get you. And I mean, and, and those are, um, you know, the, uh, the Indian stories associated with it. Um, also, the Norwegians famously have fairies and, and little people in their history as well. So we're talking about... Muskego being the place that when Norwegians come into the United States, they're coming into Muskego and then kind of branching out from there uh, because there's already an established Norwegian community. They have the whites of Scandinavia. And um, it comes from the Old Norse fatir, 
which basically means supernatural creature, uh, is related to the English word white and the German, but other people also think that it's related to the German Dutch term wicked, which means little child. And that's mostly uh, refers to the fact that whites are sometimes described as either incredibly thin or short in stature. This is from Linda Ersen's Meet the Little People of Scandinavian Folklore. They can be dangerous if offended. They usually live in harmony with us humans, but can use their magical powers if people have done something that the whites don't like. For example, damage their house or have in any other way treated them badly. They would get back at you, so people made sure not to make them upset. They often guard the environment they are in. It can be a lake or forest or another place in nature. Anyone who goes into this environment should do this with due respect to not attract the anger of the white. To make sure not to have to face the rage of the whites, one could put out food on so-called white mounds. As revenge for disturbances, damage, and other infringements, they can, for example, give you bad luck with animals, make you sick, or bring you poverty. Sometimes they took their revenge out in the children by sucking the children's fingers and toes so that it got hurt and they cried hysterically. So, gross. Gross, yeah. (laughs) Well, I've heard in Northern Europe, especially, that like civil service, civil engineer corps have built around these white mounds, these fairy mounds or, you know, little people mounds, whatever you want to characterize them as. I don't know the veracity of that. Well, they've definitely done it in Iceland. Is it, it, I knew, I knew did, somewhere in Northern Ireland. In, I didn't know on which specific peninsula. In in the Icelandic elves, um, you know, they they've done things there. And interestingly enough, uh, we've got a story about Icelandic folklore on Washington Island, here in Wisconsin. And this comes from the Ghosts of Door County by Jerry Ryder, and she tells the story of Anna, who encountered the hurdle folk, which are. Little people from Icelandic folklore, and she encountered them on Washington Island. Here's what she says. Why, the hurdle folk, of course. I saw them, Mama. I saw the hidden people. They're just like they are in Mormor's stories. Mormor's grandma. But much nicer, Anna excitedly continued. They had tiny clothes and little shoes and funny hats. We talked, and they even let me dance with them when I said that they might have my berries. They taught me a new song, and it goes like this. She sings the song. Later on, uh, her mother, I mean, her mother doesn't believe her at all, but later on her grandmother says, I haven't heard that song in a very long time because I know it too. Wow. And so it's just funny that you mentioned that, uh, you know, we talked about Iceland and that was the, the next story and the thing, you're psychic, Jeff. I guess so. You know, in Wisconsin, we have, I mean, Hurley's team. So Hurley, Wisconsin, which is up north. Uh, like the, their high school football team and stuff are the Hurley Midgets. In Mount Horeb, we have the, the Trollway. That's right. Where, uh, you know, that they have different statues of trolls and, and little, little magical creatures in Mount Horeb. And so this, these Northern European and the Scandinavian folklore, it combines with the Native American legends to like enter our consciousness, but it enters it into like a sideways kind of way where we don't believe in the hurdle folk, but we will call our team the Hurley Midgets, <laughs> right? As an homage. Right. As, and that kind of idea, you know, there's a troll shop in Mount Horeb. Yeah. You know, the, and the, I, uh, the main drag right through town there is called the Mount Horeb Trollway. Right. And uh, kind of a little backstory on that is 
um, the Wisconsin Department of Transportation planned to move the main drag from downtown Mount Horb to kind of bypass it. So in an effort to kind of keep people coming down that way, as they set up these Norwegian statues, there was a, a Norwegian trading post there, uh, a store that brought in a lot of stuff from the old from, country. From the old country. And one of the things were these little troll statues. And as kind of a marketing effort to keep people coming down, they have these elaborate wood carvings that you can go and check out, stop by, service some local businesses, and, you know, just say, hey, I visited the trolls of Mount Horeb and stop at the Grumpy Troll for a beer. Right. <laughs> right. The, right. The bar there is called the Grumpy Troll. Right. right. The famous one. And, you know, so it's it's almost like like fairies and little people and stuff. It's not only the legends of the uh, indigenous people of Wisconsin. It's in the legends of the settlers as well. And now it's in the superstitions of modern people you know, with Haunchyville. And so it's not just these societies that had a fascination with little people. Ancient Egyptians thought that little people were closer to God and they would consult them. Um, for psychic powers and predictions and things like that. Even when, you know, even go forward a couple of thousand years from ancient Egypt, you go to Denmark in the 17th century, you have the famous astronomer Tycho Brahe. Now, Tycho Brahe is, I mean, he worked, his assistant was Johannes Kepler. Kepler's the guy that discovered elliptical orbits. Mm -hmm. And Tycho Brahe was like his mentor, they did think Kepler poisoned him, but eventually they <laughs> dug up the bodies and found out that Kepler didn't poison him. Tycho Brahe was, he was like a rock star scientist. He was like Neil deGrasse Tyson if Neil deGrasse Tyson partied harder. And so um, Tycho Brahe, because he was a Danish nobleman, he, he got his, like part of his nose cut off in a duel over who was a better mathematician with this. <laughs> That's <laughs> this how you other. hacked it out? You didn't like solve word problems or? You... No, they had, they had a duel. And so he replaced... Uh, that part of his nose with gold. And so he had like a, he had like a golden nose because he had a, you know, he, like a golden prosthesis on, wow. his, on his face. He also had a psychic dwarf. Where can I get one of those? Uh, Mount Horeb. All right. From the 1890 biography, Tycho Brahe, A Picture of Scientific Life and Work in the 16th Century. His fool or jester, a dwarf called Jep, who sat at Tycho's feet when he was at table and got a morsel now and then from his hand. He chattered incessantly and according to Lagamantoris, was supposed to be gifted with second sight and his utterances were therefore listened to with some attention. Once Tycho had sent two of his assistants to Copenhagen and on the day on which they were expected back, the dwarf suddenly said during the meal, see how your people are leaving themselves in the sea. On hearing this, Tycho, who feared that the assistants had been shipwrecked, sent a man to the top of the building to look out for them. The man came back soon after and said they had seen a boat bottom upwards on the shore and two men near it dripping wet. When anyone was ill at Havine, that's where he lived, and the dwarf gave an opinion as to his chance of recovery or death, he always turned out to be right. So there you an example of this idea of the magical little people, even with supposedly a man of science. I mean, that's also, we, talk, we were talking about circuses before, right? Barnum and Bailey, who was one of the big stars of P.T. Barnum Circus. Uh, Tom Thumb. Right. And uh, he even performs for Queen Victoria twice. 
Um, General Tom Thumb, spoiler alert, he wasn't a real general. Speaking of his relationship to Wisconsin, he was in the Newhall House fire uh, in Milwaukee in 1883 that killed 71 people. And he was saved because the firemen were saving the women and the children first, right? Because that's how they did things, like in the Titanic or whatever, women and children first and then save the men. Because Tom Thumb was small, the firemen thought that he was a child. And that's why he gets saved in this new house hall fire uh, in Milwaukee. Yeah. And according to that legend is the firemen climbed the ladder to Tom Thumb's room and took both the, uh, the general and Mrs. General, uh, one under each arm and descended the ladder, which I think sounds a little cartoonish. <laughs> right. But that's the kind of the imagery that was uh, made of that. That, that tragedy is that Tom Thumb, at least, you know, escaped unscathed. Right. Well, it, it's, I mean, it's this idea of, okay, so that the fascination with little people turns to what they're magical, they're psychic, they perform in royal courts. You know, there's a, a famous painting from the 16th century in, in the Spanish court of the king where he has, you know, a dwarven assistant, much like Tico Brahe did. And then it starts becoming when it's, we don't have a court astrologers or we don't have court jesters anymore, then they start moving to the realm of entertainment. And that's General Tom Thumb. But they're still considered kind of magical. Think of Tattoo from Fantasy Island. Fantasy Island is this place where you go and... Ziplane, ziplane. <laughs> right, you live out. Uh, you know, you, you live out a fantasy. And so who's Ricardo Montabans, uh, you know, Mr. Rourke, whose assistant is a, a dwarf named Tattoo. And as part of entertainment, it, they also go into like, you know, okay, we go to the idea that these ex-circus dwarves are vengeful, right? That they're mad. And this gets turned into like a stereotype and a, a trope in different television stories that... When dwarves are involved, they're going to be kind of evil. And Tyrion and, Lannister, probably the most modern. Right. And, and, and Tyrion Lannister, they, they kind of like, they call him the imp. Or the halfling. Yeah. And the half man. Right. And uh, the idea is that he's, um, I mean, he, he does admit to being drunk all the time and he, he, you know, buys whores and stuff. But, you know, people think of him as evil. And then it kind of turns around that he's one of the most moral characters in the story that kind of turns that trope on its head. But this idea of the depraved dwarf kind of runs through our entertainment. And it's even, so speaking of Tattoo from Fantasy Island, um, he worked on the movie The Man with the Golden Gun. Roger Moore playing James Bond, fighting Christopher Lee, who plays Scaramanga, The Man with the Golden Gun. And then Scaramanga's assistant is Hervé Villachez, who played Tattoo in Fantasy Island. And Roger Moore is, is talking to this audience, and he's like, he was a very small man, and he used to touch me, and I used to say, don't touch me, you're diseased. I wasn't being cruel about his size. It was just that he was a sex maniac. He had a lust for ladies, unnatural. The Bond legend also revealed that his co-star boasted of numerous sexual adventures with prostitutes, although some of them refused his advances and his money. Moore was speaking at the South Bank Center when he revealed the sexual picodellos of Villachez, who is three foot, 11 inches tall. The 89-year-old Moore recalled, when we were in Hong Kong, he would find girls in girly clubs and go with a flashlight. You, you, not you. Moore added that he asked Villachez how many women he'd slept with during the film shoot in the Far East. 
and Villachez told me, 35. I told him that he did not count if he paid for them, and he said, sometimes when I pay, they refuse. Sadly, Villachez did not enjoy a long and prosperous life full of anecdotes like Roger Moore. After almost two decades in the limelight, his life had a tragic ending. He ended up killing himself. And uh, speaking of Tyrion Lannister from Game of Thrones, uh, Peter Dinklage actually made a movie where he played Hervé Villachez, like in the last few weeks of his life kind of thing. But that's this idea of the, you know, the vengeful dwarf, the angry dwarf. That's, I mean, Howard Stern had a character, had a guy, Hank the Angry Drunken Dwarf, that he would come down like on the bus or the train from Massachusetts where he lived to New York, where Howard Stern, uh, and then he was part of Howard Stern's whack pack and just would get drunk on the air and say mean things to people. The story goes in 1996, Hank had been up all night. He'd been waiting at Howard Stern Studios because he was a fan. And when Gary Delabate, Howard's producer, came out, uh, came into work in the morning, he saw Hank out sitting there with a bottle of vodka. And Gary's like, I knew I had something here when the dwarf showed up drunk with a bottle of vodka. And they put him on the air that morning. And he became a character. And his, his life ended sadly as well, alcohol poisoning. But that's, you know, drunk, sex, uh, <laughs> A villain. There's Dr. Loveless, Dr. Megalito Loveless. Megalito, which is Spanish for Little Michael, he's a dwarf in the original Wild Wild West TV show. He's the main bad guy. When they remade the TV show as the movie with Will Smith and Kevin Klein, Kenneth Branagh played Dr. Loveless um, with his legs cut off. So, like, he was a victim of the haunchies. (laughs) There it is. (laughs) Um, And we'd be remiss not to mention the leprechaun of Irish folk and the fighting Irish. Right. And that movie too, the leprechaun, like, so when they eventually made the leprechaun movie played by Willow, the guy that played Willow. Yeah. I can't think of his name. Jennifer Aniston famously was in leprechaun. Oh yeah. But he, you know, Willow at least showed up, you know, that was another magical little people film, Mm -hmm. you know, they're all dwar- Billy Barty, who we had talked about earlier when we talked about Wizard of Oz. Billy Barty played like the ancient wise wizard of that little, of the little people village in that movie. But there's, you know, Willow, there's Mini-Me from Austin Powers. And he's like, so Dr. Evil, he's the id of Dr. Evil. Of, you know, killing and sex and, and all these kind of things. The debauchery, and yeah. Played yeah. by little Vern Troyer. Who And Vern, uh, Vern Troyer, when he was on the show The Surreal Life a couple years later, played also played into the idea of the depraved dwarf. He's drunk on the show. He's lecherous after Adrian Curry, who was America's Next Top Model, and then she's on The Surreal Life. And when Vern Troyer's on it, Mini-Me from Austin Powers, like he's getting wasted. He's like peeing in the hallway. He's, you know, every time she's on... He says something sexual about her. Um, they really played into the depraved dwarf character for that particular quote unquote reality show. Then there's the, you know, the idea that they're magical. That's David Lynch does that in Twin Peaks. His man from another place played by a little person, Michael J. Anderson, who um, speaks backwards and dances. And that shows that they're in a dream sequence. And, um, Funny enough, you know, in the mid-90s, this movie comes out called Living in Oblivion. And Peter Dinklage, who we were just talking mm-hmm. about, that's his first big role. And um, Living in Oblivion is the, it's, it's about 
independent filmmaking, and the director is played by Steve Buscemi, and he plays an independent film director, and he's trying to create a dream sequence in his movie, and so he hires a dwarf to be in the dream sequence, and that's Peter Dinklage. And so um, they get into the dream sequence, and Peter Dinklage's character, Tito, is like, why does my character have to be a dwarf? And the director, <laughs> Nick's like, he doesn't have to be. And Tito, why is he? Is that the only way you can make this a dream to put a dwarf in it? The director, no, Tito, I, Tito, have you ever had a dream with a dwarf in it? Do you know anyone who's had a dream with a dwarf in it? No, I don't even have dreams with dwarves in them. The only place I've seen dwarves in dreams is in stupid movies like this. Oh, make it weird, put a dwarf in it. Everyone will go, whoa, this must be a fucking dream. There's a fucking dwarf in it. Well, I'm sick of it. You can take this dream sequence and stick it up your ass. And... You know, and so that was the, the first, my first exposure to Peter Dinklage, and it was perfect, because it's like, right, it's ridiculous. Uh, we put a dwarf in the dream, make it magical. And this idea that little people are magical, like, it's sad when it's Vern Troyer. You know, it can be funny, like in, in a movie like that. It's kind of sad when it comes to Hervé Villachez. But then it's deadly in other places, like in the Congo. This is from a news report uh, in the mid-2000s. Um, in, the, in the civil war that's going on in the Congo. Sudi Alamasi, an official of the pro-government group Rally for Congolese Democracy, said I had begun receiving reports of cannibalism from people displaced by fighting more than a week ago. We hear reports of enemy commanders feeding on the sexual organs of pygmies, apparently believing this would give them strength. We also have reports of pygmies being forced to feed on the cooked remains of their colleagues. Cannibalism has reemerged throughout eastern Congo as the last vestiges of colonial influence have been eroded during the war. Much of the vast forested area is controlled by the Mai Mai, a loose grouping of tribal militias united by their magical beliefs and their taste for human flesh. And the pygmies are famously, you know, like a tribe in Africa that's genetically shorter. Smaller, diminutive, yeah. Yeah, smaller. And, and so um, they're considered so magical that they were killing them and taking their body parts and using them for food as part of a magical ritual. Then in the 2010s, this is from a, an article in The Atlantic. Why are there so many shows about little people? I think regular... I don't think there's enough. <laughs> right. I mean, they need to work too. Exactly. But at the same point, they're kind of exoticized as like, this is specifically, you know, they can't just... It's almost like, exhibitionist, yeah. This is a normal person show. It's like, no, this is just, why are you in it? Because you're a little person. I think regular-sized people feel more secure as people when they can observe midgets. I think that contrast is validating because we tell ourselves that there's at least people who have it worse because they're small. We need the midgets to feel normal. A story from The Atlantic. And it's that fear of the other. That, you know, anytime you exoticize something, like, they, they, I think another term they use is orientalize. It's, it's that idea that something is hidden, something's mysterious. There are people who are different from us, um, and they're unknowable. And that's how people used to feel about Africa. That's how people used to feel about the Middle East. I mean, China and the Far East is called the Orient for that reason, because they are different from us. They, they grew up in a different area. They have different religion. They have different food. They, you know, they eat dogs, kind of kind of thing. And um, that leads to some people who actually say they're afraid of little people. Achondroplasiophobia. 
It's a real thing. There's a name for it. Well, there's a name for it. Now, people debate whether it's a real thing or not. But the hero's from fearof.net. Achondroplegiophobia is a fear of little people, or midgets, although this term is not used anymore, as it's considered offensive to people with dwarfism. It is also called lollipop gildophobia. And I found that in several different places, the lollipop gildophobia. I'm like, how is this a real thing? The word achondroplegiophobia is derived from the medical term achondroplasia, which is a skeletal disorder of the cartilage that forms during the fetal stage. This condition leads to dwarfism. Now, it says that Lindsay Lohan is believed to suffer uh, from this, or she says she has a fear of little people. Famously, Rosie O'Donnell said that she's afraid of dwarves. John Stamos. No. Google John Stamos, Brad Williams. Brad Williams is a very successful dwarf comedian. Sure. Who... Played a prank on John Stamos. Check that out. We'll, we'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> okay, that's crazy. Um, that John Stamos be afraid, but it's, so you know, they talk about the causes, and this says, and this is ridiculous too, so fearof.net is obviously not the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual used by the American Psychological Association. The fear of little people usually originates from a negative traumatic experience with dwarves in the individual's childhood. For many children, this fear of little people starts with an encounter with a dwarf at school or daycare. The fear of dwarves uh, can be evolutionary. Mankind is known to fear anything that is extraordinary or out of the normal bounds. And many adult uh, achondroplegiophobic individuals actually believe that dwarves are from other planets or have alien origins. The concept of little green men, a commonly used term for Martians, might have also been derived from little people or used interchangeably with each other. So I don't exactly know uh, how real achondroplegiophobia is, except for John Stamos, I guess. Lindsay Lohan. But I just thought it was interesting that there's a whole bunch of pages on the internet about this fear, about this phobia. And so why, you know, if, if you take out the exotization, take out the orientalization of another community, a group of people, you know, take out the magical aspect of it and take out the entertainment aspect of it. What are some reasons that this fascination um, actually might exist? And in some cases, this fear. And transgenerational epigenetic inheritance, otherwise known as genetic memory. Now, there's that whole theory and philosophy, okay, how much is nature versus nurture? That was big in, we talk about enlightenment philosophy, the idea of the tabula rasa, the yeah, clean the blank slate, slate by... Uh... Pinker, yeah. When you're born, that, you know, you are all nurture. How much of it might be nature? Well, some people, like Noam Chomsky, he believes that some of language is genetically inherited. He calls it the universal grammar, that we are predisposed to the certain types of sounds and saying certain types of things. He had said, in fact, that if aliens had come to Earth, they wouldn't think of our languages as different languages, but one language with different dialects. So the idea that the forming blocks, the way we speak, is even though the, the words are different, the, the people talking to each other, the sounds we make are all put together basically in the same way from culture to culture. And so to him, he believes in the universal grammar that 
uh, language is something, the ability to create the language and speak it is something genetically inherited versus something that we just teach each other through nurture. So if we can inherit some of that, can we also inherit memories? Can we inherit other things? I mean, we famously don't have much for, you know, a baby. I mean, think about what kind of instincts a baby has just to eat, to maybe grab something. You put your finger in a baby's hand and it, it grabs. Um, and the only real defense mechanism they have is a startle response. You're right. probably witnessing that with your newborn. Right. And sometimes wake themselves up with a big, quick reflex. But, you know, um, we always think like, okay, a beaver knows how to build a dam. You know, humans can only, you know, learn things through culture. Well, what parts might be instinct and what parts might not be? And, you know, some people even think that Native American tribes have more of a tendency for genetic memory than other groups because they didn't have written language before European contact. So if you're always relying on oral traditions and oral history, are you more predisposed to pass things down genetically um, than culturally? And so... In some, say, like, specifically, um, the Jewish lineage are more literate because literary, literacy has been in their bloodline longer. So that's one... Exactly right. It's been, Hebrew's been a language, for, I mean, it was dead for a couple thousand years or whatever, and then brought back when the mm -hmm. state of Israel came. And so now, now Hebrew is kind of the classical Hebrew from temple and the Yiddish and stuff and, you know, brought into it. So the, the modern version of Hebrew isn't exactly the ancient version, but they, you know, it's, it's been a language and a written language for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. And also speaking of genetics, I think I, you know, I read a study about how people with the last name Cohen, which is for the... Uh, a common Jewish know, last name. Common, a Jewish priest, uh, Cohen. People with that last name share closer genetics, even inside um, the Jewish population, mm -hmm. than Jews who have different last names. And so, I mean, that's... Now we're just talking theories and stuff. Like, but the, the, the idea, though that these things might be passed because of thousands of years of either an oral tradition like in Native American society or a written tradition uh, like in Jewish society. And so can things be passed that quickly? We think of genetics as something that takes a thousand years. Many, many generations. Can of, something be passed more quickly? Yeah. Now, Washington Post, December 7th, 2013. Study finds that fear can travel quickly through generations of mice DNA. A newborn mouse pup, seemingly innocent to the workings of the world, may actually harbor generations worth of information passed down by its ancestors. In this experiment, researchers taught male mice to fear the smell of cherry blossoms by associating the scent with mild shocks. Two weeks later, they bred with females. The resulting pups were raised to adulthood, having never been exposed to the smell. Yet when the critters caught a whiff of it for the first time, they suddenly became anxious and fearful. They were even born with more cherry blossom detecting neurons in their noses and more brain space devoted to cherry blossom smelling. The memory transmission extended out another generation when these male mice bred and similar results were found. Neuroscientists at Emory University found that genetic markers thought to be wiped clean before birth 
were used to transmit a single traumatic experience across generations, leaving behind traces in the behavior and anatomy of future pups. The study, published in the journal Nature Neuroscience, adds to a growing pile of evidence suggesting that characteristics outside of the strict genetic code may also be acquired from our parents through epigenetic inheritance. Epigenetics studies how molecules act as DNA markers that influence how the genome is read. We pick up these epigenetic markers during our lives and in various locations in our body as we develop and interact with our environment. Through a process dubbed reprogramming, these epigenetic markers were thought to be erased in the earliest stages of development in mammals. But recent research, this study included, has shown that some of these markers may survive to the next generation. So, so it's not John Stamos's fault that he's afraid of midgets. It's his, no. his grandpa's, right? Hmm? It's his grandpa's that work yeah. in the circus. <laughs> That's exactly. That's exactly right. I blame John Stamos's ancestors uh, for what happens. Well, you know, is there something to that? We talk. I mean, these are, you know, cultures. We talk about Native American culture. We talk about European. Like, there's no contact between Norwegians and American Indians until the middle of the... 15. Right? Yeah. You know, to, so how can they have such similar legends? Like, it's little people protecting sacred areas. It's little, you know, why is that? Well, let's go to the Indonesian island of Flores. This is an article titled Investigating Homo Floresiensis and the Myth of the Ibu Gogo by Paige Madison. She's a grad student at the University of Human Origins at Arizona State. An ancient legend from the Indonesian island of Flores speaks of a mysterious wild grandmother of the forest who eats everything, the Ibu Gogo. According to folklore, such tiny hairy people as her once roamed the tropical forests alongside modern humans, eating crops and sometimes even human flesh. For decades, ethnographers documented the tale, recording details of the Ibu Gogo's mumbling speech to her long, pendulous breasts, all while assuming the story was simply a myth. The legend became viewed in an entirely new light, however, when the bones of an equally small, previously unknown species of human relative was discovered deep in a cave on the same island. The 2004 announcement of a new branch of the human evolutionary tree was astonishing, to say the least. Standing just over a meter tall, the hominin labeled Homo florsiensis had a small brain, the apparent ability to make arduous water crossings, and seemingly honed skills in making stone tools. Much of the species' anatomy looked primitive, yet evidence for their behavior indicated an advanced, human-like being. The hominin was so seemingly mystical that the research team drew from J.R.R. Tolkien's fictional word for its nickname, the, the Hobbit. Hobbit. Arguably the strangest aspect of the diminutive hominin story was the suggestion that they survived into the recent past, roaming the tropical forests and ancient volcanoes as recently as 12,000 years ago. Now, that's after Neanderthal. So, like, you know, and, and we have Neanderthal DNA in us from when, you know, Cro-Magnons and Neanderthals interbred. And so, you know, if we're talking about, you know, why we might be afraid of something or why little people might come into our legends and things, well, here's an example of a creature that coexisted alongside of us, at least according to this original study. A creature that was alongside humans, could we be remembering some of that? If that has survived through their legends, the Ibu Gogo, the grandmother that eats everything, was that also different places on the planet? Were there all, you know, were there more Homo floresiensis 
in different places? And was it alongside our more recent ancestors, even past the Neanderthal? And could that have not only come through legends and folklore over time, but also survived through some kind of genetic memory, much like the cherry blossom scent scared mice generations after the initial trauma that their grandparents experienced, could this flow through as well? Now, originally I thought that was a pretty good, uh, you know, like a, like a pretty deep theory there. But then about 12 years later, and it's funny, so when you read a, when you read a story on the internet almost 20 years ago, like when mm-hmm. The Hobbit was discovered, it's always the initial shocking discovery that makes the news. 12 years later, in Nature, uh, this is March 30, 2016, uh, they released an article, Revised Stratigraphy and Chronology for the Homo Floresiensis in Indonesia. And now they revised the time not to 12,000 years ago, but 60 to 100,000 years ago. So it puts the Hobbit more in line with you know, the Neanderthal, Neanderthal yeah. and back there. So, I mean, that kind of genetic memory thing could still exist, but it's not like it was where it's 12,000 years ago on this island in Indonesia um, where humans, like modern humans, people that would be physically indistinguishable from us. I mean, besides like- Same our genomes. Yeah. <laughs> right, the same genome, like, the same genomes and everything. Um, so basically us alongside these, you know, tiny creatures. And so um, that wasn't revealed in the news. That's like, oh, hey, remember we told you this crazy stuff 12 years ago? Guess Tur- what? Turns out <laughs> it turns we're out a little we're, off. We were a touch ahead of ourselves. And we were off by 50,000 years. I say, yeah. Um, but either way, I think it's an, you know, it's an interesting thing where it's like, okay, where, you know, where were little people in the timeline of humanity? They existed. And they didn't exist alongside of us, probably. But they're still there, and our legends kind of account for that. And if they were a competing hominid form in an island, like we're competing for the same food, we're competing for the same kind of thing, well, the idea that they're um, vengeful or angry, I mean, what do we do with the other? What do we do with a different tribe, right? Well, and we even talked about, yeah, the, um, was it the Ojibwe and the Sioux who mm-hmm. had the... Uh... Yeah, the Ojibwe and the Sioux probably shared a similar bloodline, but they were that much different in their, I guess, tribal rituals or history that they, Sioux literally means enemy in the Ojibwe language. Oh, okay. So it's it's interesting to think that two tribes that have similar traditions, similar bloodlines can be that at odds, but then you take you know, a completely different genome structure, you know, one that may have informed some of um, modern human right. and see how much divergence that would be to have that fear and yeah, baked into the genetic cake. It's possible. Sure. I mean, when you're talking about that, also think about like, if you take 23 and me, mm-hmm. so like in 23 and me, French and German, heritage in like that the ancestral makeup mm-hmm. is the same is that right so they don't differentiate because it's the same same land mass. right and how many times have france and germany <laughs> gone Been to more, war yeah right? yeah so if you think that people even of identical well, it, genetic heritage and that would be like 
a modern day version would be the, the Crips and Bloods. Right. Yeah. It's just, it's territory and it's tribes and, yep. and that's, it's you know, you're yep. fighting over the resources. And so that idea, I mean, and there's also the idea that people are fascinated with little versions of things. Like we're also extremely attracted to children. Like we love children um, because they are like, we're, you know, we are evolutionarily predisposed to take care of them. Mm -hmm. And so if you have an adult version of that, is there some kind of uncanny valley there that sets off um, some kind of emotional reaction? That they're like, oh, this is supposed to be a kid and it's not. And I don't know how to process that. Much like when you're playing a video game and that person looks just almost like a person, but just like that Final Fantasy movie that came out or whatever, like 20 years ago, there's a, like it's completely computer generated and they tried to make it photorealistic mm -hmm. and instead it just looked just gross. a touch off, yeah. That uncanny valley is the <laughs> yeah. great term for it. And so there's just those, you know, there's little things like that's more of a, you know, Occam's razor explanation. It's like, okay, well, it it's supposed to be a child, but it's not. So does that set off those internal triggers and alarms for us? Mm -hmm. And then there's genetic memory. Uh, that's okay. Now we're getting a little weirder. And then there's well, they're fairies and leprechauns, guys. That's what it is. <laughs> There's, yeah, magical the, little people, literally. Right. That, the, that informed the legend. Yeah. The Mamega Wejack, like that's what they are. And yeah. then we're going all the way into that. And then eventually you arrive at the haunchies cutting your legs off on Mystic Drive because you went too far. So thanks for joining us on this exploration of Haunchyville on Wisconsin Legends. Once again, I am Mike Huberty from American Ghost Walks. And if you are interested in legends like Haunchyville, uh, we do have a ghost walk in Waukesha County, the Waukesha Ghost Walk. And more like that, Milwaukee County and Lake Geneva, you know, just a stone's throw, just a stone's throw from where you find the haunchies. Check them all out. And I'm Jeff Finnup with Badgerland Legends. You can check out BadgerlandLegends.com or Badgerland Legends on the social medias. And if somebody wanted to hear a really cool song about the haunchies, where would they go? Do you know of any pop culture references to the haunchies, Mike? <laughs> Thanks for the plug, Jeff. And my band Sunspot, which you can also find at sunspotuniverse.com, wrote a song about the haunchies. And let's close it out with a trip down to Haunchyville. Don't go down to Haunchyville. Yeah.
Hey guys, real quick, this is Mike from Wisconsin Legends Podcast coming at you, letting you know that Jeff and I will be working on Season 2 of Wisconsin Legends coming up right after this Halloween 2022. So please, if you go to wisconsinlegendspodcast.com, you can go to the bottom of the screen and hit subscribe, and we'll tell you when the new episodes are out, or you can follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, wherever you get podcasts, you will find Wisconsin Legends.